Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Heard about the Missouri man decked out in body armor who toted a loaded firearm through Walmart? He now faces a terrorism charge. Our monthly legal roundtable is here to talk about it. We'll also delve into some of the latest regional and national news stories pertaining to the law. Do you have a question or comment about anything we're discussing today? Send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org and we may share it with our panel on the air. There is a lot to discuss today. Joining me in studio is Bill Freivogel, a professor for the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. Bill, welcome to the program. Hi. We're also joined by Mark Smith, Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University. Mark, welcome. Thank you. And this month, we have a new panelist. Washington University's law school now has a First Amendment clinic, and Lisa Hoppenjans is its director. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Before we dig into the topics this month, I just wanted to have Lisa tell us a little bit about this new clinic. It sounds really exciting. Yeah, so for those who may not be familiar with what the concept of a law school clinic is, a law school clinic... um, provides an opportunity for second- and third-year law students to work on real cases under the supervision of a licensed attorney and provide those services pro bono to people in the community. That means we don't pay. Correct. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And so the First Amendment Clinic at WashU's Law School is focused on litigating cases involving issues of freedom of speech, freedom of press, and freedom of assembly. So we'll be um, taking and litigating cases, either advancing claims on those freedoms or defending uh, claims against folks who may have a defense space on a a free speech claim. So you might even get involved with helping local journalists. That's exactly right. You can see why I was asking about whether it was free. (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's kick things off today by talking about two high-profile sentences in the same corruption case. Uh, Steve Stenger, the former St. Louis County executive, got four years. Sheila Sweeney, the former chief executive of the St. Louis Economic Development Partnership, got probation. Um, Bill, what's the difference between what she did and what he did? Well, he he was uh, he was the one in charge of uh, of the dishonest service and the corruption. Uh, she went along. Uh, I mean, the, the charge against her, I believe, is called misprison of a felony, which is people probably haven't heard heard about since about Watergate. Uh, so it's it, you know it's knowing that a felony is being committed but not blowing the whistle on it. I think Hal Goldschmidt, the, the prosecuting attorney, the U.S. attorney, said uh, she had an obligation to blow the whistle. Uh, but her actions were nothing like uh, Steve Stenger's, which you know have proved to be more and more outrageous as more details are disclosed of him, you know, showing up, not wanting to work, uh, you know, thinking how stupid people are to just let him, just give him a whole lot of campaign finance money, and he does nothing, plays video games, and the, uh, I mean, just just a horrible picture of what this individual. Uh, is character is like. A lot more that's come out about Stenger in the process of this sentencing. It just sounds like what a mess was going right. on there. That yeah, sounds terrible. And and with um, Sheila Sweeney, and I should say I've known Sheila for almost 40 years. I, I like her very much. Um, and I, I feel terrible that she got caught up in this and don't understand the decision she made. But it sounded like, and this was one of the things I think even uh, Hal Goldsmith, who was the prosecutor, said that, you know, Stanger was um, really bullying and name-calling and threatening to, like, ruin people if they didn't do what he said. Even under the sentencing guidelines, the most she would have could have gotten was 10 months. Judge Catherine Perry is not a softie. She's, so I think um, they, the judge looked at her good acts in the community, the fact that it was first time, the fact that 
um, you know, that she was being coerced to some extent and and that she took responsibility for her decision to give her. And then I think Stanger they threw the book at, so and probably rightly so, although we've got jails too full of people. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that really came out in the sentencing memo uh, filed by the government in, in Stanger's case was really the extent to which he treated employees of the county as people there to serve Steve Stinger, not there to serve the people of St. Louis County. And I think that factor um, was rightly shocking to people who read that memo. I mean, just the, the great extent to which he really viewed these employees, especially the people that he appointed, as folks who simply owed loyalty to Steve Stinger and no loyalty to the citizens of St. Louis County. And I think that included Sheila, uh, Sweeney because no. uh, I, I believe that I read that uh, the, the Goldschmidt said that he didn't even put some of the statements Stinger had made about right. they were so Sweeney big. in the sentencing memo because they were so shocking. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> a long time ago I got appointed to the police board city by Governor Mel Carnahan and I, I met him for the first and only time basically. And, and I remember he said, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You should do the right thing. And, and that's – that's how government officials should be. Just do what you think is right and and not, I'm going to call you all the time and yell at you. And, and it sounds like Stenger do. was just the antithesis of that. of that. Right, right. And yet I heard some anger on social media because she was paid um, in one of these years. Her total compensation package was about right. $500,000 a year in public funds. Is that something that a judge might, um, you know, use as they're deciding how to sentence someone like, wow, you were really highly paid here? Or is that just something that outrages the public? Yeah, I'm not sure it would really be a, a factor in a sentencing yeah, decision, so but it, it it does feel a little bit outrageous, <laughs> you know, to money. to be paid that much and then to not really be honest in the way you're carrying out your duties and not blowing the whistle on on what was going on. But I mean, let's be on, let's let's be honest. There are a lot of people who don't blow their whistle on their right. bosses, and that's too bad. That actually is a great segue into one of the other cases that we wanted to talk about today. Um, this is another case involving public sector employees who became aware of wrongdoing. Ambry Schusler and Katie Deerdorf were both assistant circuit attorneys for St. Louis City. They were friends with another city prosecutor, Bliss Worrell. It's a very complicated case. Here's the short version. Worrell was close friends with a police officer, and when his daughter's stolen credit card turned up on a homeless man, the officer beat up the guy very badly. Then Worrell filed false charges against the guy for supposedly resisting arrest. We now know that the officer and Worrell discussed the officer assaulting the homeless man on speakerphone in front of Worrell's co-workers, including Schusler. But neither Schusler nor Deerdorf immediately reported the matter. And when they were questioned, they obscured some parts of what they knew and when they knew it. Now their law licenses are suspended, in one case for three years, in the other case for two. What do you guys think about the punishment in that case? Bill? Well, I think it's <clears throat> I think it's appropriate. Um, you know, one could maybe even argue uh, it, it could have been tougher. But, but I think mo- I, I think um, like an initial review of it actually had recommended uh, uh, more moderate uh, punishment. So I, I would be in support of the Supreme Court decision upholding this amount of of punishment. I mean, these are this this is. I mean, this is this case involves. I mean, the conversation that you just described, uh, where the officer is is talking on speakerphone uh, to these young uh, assistant prosecu- uh, circuit attorneys, 
Uh, I mean, he's talking about him beating up the guy who's handcuffed yeah. and sticking a gun in his mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we're just very we're, disturbing details. And they made light of it when they heard. Uh, yeah, about it. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, one of them ma- made a joke which we will not, won't, won't, won't repeat. Uh, but a but racist, a, homophobic, a racist, joke. homophobic yeah. joke, right? That made added to the seriousness of of everything that happened. So yeah, I, they certainly deserve uh, what they got. I think. Yeah, the. the they were both very young attorneys when this happened. One was out of law school for a year. The other was out of three uh, three years. But still, I mean, it's hard when you're a young attorney. But you know you can't lie and you can't do things like this. I also found interesting the disciplinary. So I used to chair up until like a year or two ago. When the There are two main disciplinary panels in the city of St. Louis, and that's where we're gone. And so we would every month or so meet and hear complaints, and we would then make recommendations. And they made a recommendation, I think, just for a letter, um, like a reprimand, nothing more than that. And then then they go up to the Office of Disciplinary Council, and they said, no, we're not going to accept that. We're going to go to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is – Missouri Supreme Court is the one who makes the final determination of discipline. And they he took it to the Missouri Supreme Court, and they instituted this um, disbarment. So um, I think they can both – reapply for admission to the bar, but I think it's like they've got to wait two and the other one three years. years. Yeah, and that's and it's not a guarantee that. And how unusual, so you were dealing with this disciplinary panel for them to be overridden by the Supreme it's Court itself. Unusual. Yeah, I'm so, kind of surprised because, um, I mean, most most of the cases came through, probably half of them, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a misunderstanding of what, you know, my lawyer, I thought they were going to do this, and the lawyer never said they were going to do this. The lawyer said, I'm going to try and I'm going to defend you. I can't guarantee I'm going to get you off or something like that. Or it's a fee dispute. And there are other mechanisms for that. So maybe about a third to a quarter we would go on. And it was a lot of times lawyers just hadn't been good about responding. So maybe there'd be a letter or something. You're not going to disbar them for that unless it's a repeated pattern. And so this is pretty serious. And and so I was kind of surprised the committee, but I, I didn't see what they saw, so maybe there was more. And I saw one of the attorneys representing him. We saw him on a lot of the disciplinary cases. That, that's kind of what he does is represent lawyers when they get in ethical problems. I mean, one other aspect of this case that relates more to Worrell than to these yeah. uh, two women is— And, and Worrell is the um, prosecutor who initially found out that her, her close her, friend had beaten up had a homeless man. Right, and, and she has been disbarred, I believe. Yeah, I think so. Uh, um, but but one thing that she did early in this uh, series of events is she uh, went in and uh, issued the warrant against the person who had been beaten up to and included a uh, you know resisting arrest or fleeing from the police charge in order to justify the injuries to the person who had been beaten up by. I guess her boyfriend or her friend. It's been implied, yes, close friend. It's a legal um, term right there. <laughs> and, of course, the, 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 the officer himself is, is serving 50-some-odd months, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a, a lot of bad outcomes on that case right there. Just a quick question for you, Mark Smith. You're in the career services field. Yeah. With these two young attorneys having lost their license for multiple years, do you think they'll be able to go back and have a good career in law after this? Well, they might. I mean, they might. They can recover from this. Yeah. They, maybe they go to a different jurisdiction. Maybe they stay here and, you know, they do criminal defense work. Or I think it would be tough to be be a prosecutor. Go back to being a prosecutor, yeah. yeah. You know, the one other thing that adds to the, the sort of interest in this case is that the names Worrell and, yeah. and Deirdorf are, are from 
sports backgrounds. And remind our, our <laughs> listeners on that. Well, Worrell uh, was a, a, a pitcher for the Singles Cardinals. And, and this Deer, was his daughter, daughter who got in trouble. They're both daughters, daughter, right? Both yeah, daughters. I think so. And Deerdorf Deer uh, on the um, Cardinals. Football Cardinals. Football Cardinals. Yeah. Almost said Rams. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good catch there. <laughs> That's Bill Freivogel, a professor for the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. We're also talking to Mark Smith, Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University, and Lisa Hoppenjans, Director of WashU's new First Amendment Clinic. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue the conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Now back to our legal roundtable. We're here with Bill Freivogel, a professor for the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, Mark Smith, Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University, and Lisa Hoppenjans, Director of WashU's new First Amendment Clinic. Let's talk a bit about Dmitry Andrechenko. He's a Springfield guy who gave Missouri man a bad name earlier this month. Andrechenko walked into Walmart just days after 22 people were killed in a Walmart in El Paso, Texas. He wore body armor. He carried a loaded firearm. And yes, he got an immediate reaction and ended up slapped with a felony charge of making a terrorist threat. He said in a probable cause statement that he was testing whether Walmart would protect his right to openly carry weapons. So he's saying he's got a Second Amendment case here. Lisa, does he possibly also have a First Amendment case? Well, I view this more as a Second Amendment issue. I mean, there is First Amendment protection for conduct that's considered expressive. Uh, the way the courts have applied those tests, one of the factors they look to is if some if, if the conduct is really the equivalent of symbolic speech. And they consider, is someone who's seeing you engage in this conduct going to understand what your message is? So flag burning is an example of that. Um, Here, when someone is walking through Walmart heavily armed, wearing a bulletproof vest, recording himself on his cell phone, I don't think there's a clearly understood message um, that folks viewing this behavior are going to receive. And in fact, the message that reasonable people in Walmart did uh, receive was that he he was a threat to their safety. Mm-hmm. And so um, I view this more of, of a sort of Second Amendment and criminal case than a, than a First Amendment case. What about his Second Amendment rights? Did he have the right to stride through Walmart dressed in this fashion, carrying this weapon? Bill, for five ogles. Well, he, uh, there is a Second Amendment, there's a Second Amendment right uh, based on the U.S. Constitution, and there's a Missouri has an open carry statute, so he can openly carry. But you, but again, you cannot do that in a way that's threatening. Uh, so the Missouri law doesn't protect that. The Second Amendment uh, would not protect that. And 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 the threatening nature of it also, you know, relates to the First Amendment question because you 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 can't uh, speech that threatens others is not protected speech. And this would have been viewed as an immediate threat, I think, or could have been viewed as immediate threat, which gets the least amount of protection. Uh, he had 100 rounds of ammunition with him. Um, so I think the, you know, the state uh, t- uh, terrorism charge seems like it's a, a reasonable uh, charge to bring. And yet I'm reading that he apparently checked in with a Walmart employee who told him he could bring his gun in. Does that change things here? <laughs> Mark Smith? Um. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it depends on what he said. I had not heard that. So if he's saying, I'm going to bring a semi-automatic rifle, that's one thing. I suspect if if you if he just called in on the phone 
and may said, I bring my gun? Yeah, I, 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 I assume I can do concealed carry or uh, do carry. That's okay, right? And they say, sure. I still don't think this is within the scope. I mean, the other thing is, you know, we're we're the legal roundtable, but obviously this is extraordinarily bad judgment. He he could have gotten shot. Um, so I just worry you're going to have some other 18 or 19 year old who wants to test this out and thinks it's a good idea. Uh, I think it's I, I really think bad I, judgment. I think I read in one of the stories that uh, his uh, fiance, possibly, and sister, but both said. This is not a good idea. So <laughs> maybe a lesson. Yeah, is listen, listen to your sister slash yeah. fiance. <laughs> I think the other lesson that women usually have better judgment than men. So. I don't think I either, Lisa, or I will argue with that. <laughs> Let's switch to something a little bit tastier. Um, Amagetti's on the Hill operated as a beloved Italian deli at the corner of Wilson and Marconi Avenues since 1921. But earlier this month, the restaurant closed its doors only to reopen almost immediately as Colino's Cafe and Bakery. Now the owner of the Amagetti's brand has filed for a restraining order against Colinos, saying the new venture violates their licensing agreement. Um, what's really at issue here? Well, it's, it's hard to tell because, you know, this is what lawyers always say. It depends on what it says in the documents. And, and they probably signed some kind of licensing agreement or uh, franchise agreement, which would um, – and, and it also sounds like there was a covenant not to compete in there, which means I'm not going to – go into a similar business in the same place. So I think it's probably pretty clear that, you know, if I own a McDonald's and I decide I'm going to start selling something different from the McDonald's or I'm going to serve my hamburgers a different way, McDonald's can come in and keep me from doing that. Um, if I want to close my McDonald's and my franchise agreement and open up Mark's Hamburger Place, I can't do. I can't use the McDonald's secret sauce. That's a trade secret. There's an agreement, and it would depend on what the agreement said. Could I open a hamburger place there, or do I have to do a dry cleaners or something? So a lot's going to be depending on it on the on the actual written agreement. Having said that, you know courts understand that licensing agreements, franchises that franchisees often are less sophisticated, so they provide some protections. But if you sign something that says I'm not going to open. A, a sandwich shop in this place and I won't compete with you, then they're probably going to hold you to that. Lisa Hubbenjans, I understand there has been um, some developments on this case that the media hasn't been on top of yet, but looking through the docket, the judge has made a move. Yeah, so um, the plaintiff in this case moved for a temporary restraining order, basically uh, saying, you know, while this case is pending, I, I'm at risk of immediate and irreparable harm unless you act right now, Judge. And so the judge has the authority to do that for limited periods under Missouri law. And in this case, the judge actually did enter a temporary restraining order, putting some restrictions on the defendants um, in terms of barring them from using any of the recipes they may have gotten from Amagetti's. They've actually been directed to remove all references and advertisements from its location and on social media, anything that refers to Amagetti's. They're supposed to take that down. And the judge even directed them to put up signs inside the store, one by the cash register and I think one by the front door, notifying customers this is not Amagetti's. Amagetti's, the, the remaining location, is uh, out on, you know, in Rock Hill. That's fascinating to, that they have to proactively warn people <laughs> you're in a different restaurant here. Um, Bill Freibogel, what do you think of that? Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, I think that I, I, w I was reading the same restraining order um, that Lisa's talking about. And it, the last paragraph, I think, is particularly funny. I mean, this is all in the judge's 
uh, handwriting, which is a little hard to read, and he's got a bunch of bunch of stuff scr- uh, scratched out. And but his last thing is parties shall simultaneously exchange recipes for the bread and secret sauce at the office of the plaintiff within seven days of this order. The recipe shall be marked attorney's eyes only until further order of the court. I'd love to be there for the exchange of, of sauce and bread recipes. Get the secret sauce. <laughs> That's the thing about trade secrets. I mean, trade secrets don't have intellectual property uh, protection. You know, so the, the recipe for Coke is not uh, protected by the federal government. And the reason is because if you get a patent or That'll run out eventually. So they want to keep the Coke recipe. So they got to keep it secret. And if it somehow gets out, you could use it's the Coke. Out. Yeah. And so, so they're, you know, whether it's the Bush's baked bean recipe or the Kentucky Fried Chicken seasoning, those are all trade secrets. So you have to con- protect them very closely. And if you give them to people, you want to have uh, stuff in writing that they can't use it, they can't spread it. I thought one of the interesting legal wrinkles on this case is that the woman who opened Colino's Cafe and Bakery, where Amagetti's used to be, she was not herself, apparently, a party to this franchise agreement, but her husband was. Um, under the law, does that matter? Are husbands and wives one and the same for the purpose of these agreements? I, Mark, I see you kind of I don't frowning. think they are. I yeah. mean, what, it depends on what they say in there, but I don't think it is. Now, I think the, the bigger issue might be are there some restrictions as to what can happen in that space? I think, but once again, we don't know what the document says. So it's less about their relationship. Uh, yeah, and, and I think uh, the, um, the 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 wife is the, was a co-owner, so I, I think she would be bound. In, oh, they were the co-owners together. Yeah, so it you didn't, think they it both didn't look as a, it didn't look as though that wrinkle was keeping the judge from you know act, act, taking action yeah. to to protect the trade secret. Here's another lawsuit involving a private business. Um, In this case, it's the Fox Theater. They were sued over their access for patrons with hearing impairments, and they ended up appealing that case, and they lost on appeal. Um, What's at the heart of this lawsuit? This is under the Americans with Disability Act, and and you have to provide equal access to people with disabilities. And what the Fox was doing was saying uh, for hearing-impaired individuals, we'll have one show where you can come in and, and what is it called, the um, caption, closed captioning. And and you have to come to that show. And this patron said, no, I don't want to come to that show. I want to come to the show I want to. And so um, so the question was, is this a reasonable accommodation? And the A Circuit said, you have to make it available for others. Interesting, I thought, was the Fox, there's an affirmative defense where uh, – a company can say, well, it would be too expensive to do that. And Fox said, we're not raising that. And I think that's very smart that they weren't raising it because typically to raise that affirmative defense, you have to show that it would basically put you out of business to do it. It's a very high bar. So um, it seems to me, um, I'm I'm sure there's some extra costs, but I I think they're going to have to have this available for every show and for any patron who wants it at any time. Uh, is this something that could apply to much smaller, let's say, a community theater? Could a patron sue and say, I want to come to the show of my choice for this production of Guys and Dolls that's being done at a high school, and the high school has to make that happen? What do you think, Lisa? Do you think there's a precedent here? Well, I think this is where the undue burden opportunity, you know, yeah. that, that affirmative defense comes in. Right. Because, for example, a nonprofit entity or, you know, a community theater, a high school they may very well be able to meet the threshold for saying that, you know, we simply don't have the resources. That's going to be too expensive for us to provide that accommodation. And here also in the in the Fox Theater case, I mean, the court did 
note specifically that if the volume of these requests becomes so many that the Fox Theater says, you know, this is now an undue burden, that they can come back and bring its own lawsuit and seek to modify the district court's order in this case. So right right now what the Eighth Circuit has ordered is that if they get two weeks notice, if they could request two weeks ahead of time, they do have to make it available for any performance. But if the volume of the request is so great, they can seek relief later by asking to get that judgment modified. How would this affect a nonprofit like, say, the Muni, where this is like a big nonprofit? Um, they would look at like how big a financial burden is in it. Mm-hmm. So I would think the Muni, I don't know what their finances are, but they seem pretty I, th- I pretty think they're robust. Shape. Yeah, I, I would think they would have to do something like this. The other thing is, I mean, this is less a legal issue, but technology is obviously rapidly changing. And, you know, what, what would have been, you know, 20 years ago, you would have had to hire a sign language interpreter, which is very expensive. And now you've got this, it's cheaper. And, you know, think in a matter of time, there may be an app on your phone where you could do it, or you could give them a tablet or, or something like that. And so I think, um, I think this problem will probably I mean, it'll continue to be an issue, but I suspect it'll go away as technology makes it just so much easier to deal with. I think I think one thing to to note is that the ADA, the American with Disabilities Act, which is about thirty years old or so, uh, has been one of the most effective civil rights laws that you yeah. know that was passed. And this is a good example. And it seems like in many cases, it's getting people to comply voluntarily. It yeah. seems somewhat mm-hmm. unusual here that the Fox decided to take this all the way to the appeals court, especially since, as the judge seems to be saying, this is not going to be a huge expense for them. Yeah, I didn't understand it either. I agree. We got an email about something we discussed a few minutes ago, the case involving two local attorneys who have now had their law licenses suspended. James writes, It sounded as though these attorneys were getting off very lightly from my perspective. If I understood your description of the case properly, they conspired with the police to create and condemn a homeless man and completely shade the truth. It's ridiculous if you can't trust people in the legal profession. They need to be disbarred permanently. So that's a thought from one of our listeners. Even when you're disbarred permanently... You can always come back and what? ask. Where's yeah, the there, there, is, there is no disbarred permanently. You get disbarred, and then you can. I think it's five years you have to wait, and then you can come back. That doesn't mean you'll get your license. And um, and I think you know that just because they can come back doesn't mean they're going to get their license. That's interesting. So with a three-year suspension, that is more on the deep end of attorney disbarment. Yeah, if, that's if pretty you're saying serious. Five is the yeah. max. Okay. Plus, you've got that on your record. You've got. Uh, I mean, I, I got to believe you're. Your in, uh, malpractice insurance is going to go up, uh, and like we were talking about before, it's going to be harder to get a job. So I think it'll be tough. So I hate to even raise this specter, but could Steve Stenger get his law license back? He could try. <laughs> well, that's a that's a very yeah. frightening thought to end on here. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> the other thing, I mean, you're licensed by a particular state, so they're disbarred in Missouri. There are 49 other states so and District of Columbia. So I could go there, take their bar exam, and, and see if I could pass their character and fitness exam. I may not, but I might. That's Mark Smith, Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University, basically instructing lawyers on how yeah. they can get back and in apparently, the game. <laughs> apparently very morally lax and letting everyone advice. do whatever they want. <laughs> <laughs> We're also here with Bill Freivogel, a professor for the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and Lisa Hoppenjans, director of WashU's new First Amendment Clinic. We need to take a quick break. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. 
Welcome back to our Legal Roundtable. We're here with Bill Freivogel, Mark Smith, and Lisa Hoppenjans. Do you have a question or comment about anything we're discussing today? Send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org, and we may well talk about it on the air. Abortion is almost always an issue at the forefront in Missouri in recent years. But last week, critics of Missouri's new eight-week abortion ban said they would not seek signatures to overturn the law. They blamed Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. Um, Bill Freivogel, tell us what's going on here. Well, uh, uh, Jay Ashcroft uh, basically delayed and delayed uh, the uh, their ability to start collecting signatures to put this on the ballot. First, he uh, he claimed uh, at, at one point that because there was an emergency clause in the abortion bill that put part of it in into effect uh, immediately, that you couldn't have uh, a referendum on it. He lost that in court. But the court did not order Ashcroft to, you know, quickly finalize the his review of the of the of the language of the referendum, and he only got around to that uh, uh, in the in the last few days, not giving the the opponents of the law time to collect signatures. Uh, we have heard the name Ashcroft connected with anti-abortion actions in the past. There's quite a few U.S. Supreme Court cases that have his father's name on them. So, yeah, I think I think his claim that, well, I, he was just following the law, you know, I find it a little hard to believe. An Ashcroft spokeswoman said that the office not only met legal deadlines, but certified the petition five days early. Um, Lisa, what, what do you think was going on here? Well, I mean, I think the the more significant issue was really the original rejection. I mean, what, what the Court of Appeals held here, the, the, there's two different types of reviews that the Secretary of State does of these petitions. And the first one is a review as to form. And Ashcroft rejected the petition at this stage based on what he said was a constitutional issue. He said, because part of this law has already gone into effect, this referendum is not constitutional, and I'm rejecting it for that reason. What the appeals court said was, at this initial stage, all that you're allowed to look at is form. And they were unanimous on that. And they said form means basically have you followed the sample language um, and requirements that you need to in order to simply submit your referendum petition. And, you know, the court didn't think it was a close call. So his argument that really I had to make this constitutional decision at this point um, and rejecting it for that reason at this early stage in the process, I think, uh, was the result of really the most substantial delay in this case. I mean, and it was unfortunate because the appeals court really recognized the problem here that when you are, you know, by rejecting it on a constitutional issue and requiring all this additional litigation, you're really delaying things to the point where people are going to be denied of the ability to bring their petition. But the court ultimately decided it didn't have the power to order him to do it any faster. So this new law, basically an eight-week ban on abortion with a bunch of other clauses in it, it does go into effect August 28th, which is Wednesday. Is there anything at this point that opponents of this can do to stop this from being the new law in Missouri? Or is it well, over? Yeah, I mean, there there's there are lawsuits to stop it be, from going into effect. I would be a very, very, very surprised if the law went into effect. I mean, it is obvious. It's a it's obviously 
violates uh, U.S. Supreme Court decisions of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus and Casey. whole women's health. The, the uh, uh, yes, I mean it, it, for it to be const- for the Missouri law to be constitutional, the Supreme Court would have to overturn uh, Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Uh, so I would be very surprised if the law is is not the impact, the effectiveness of the law is not delayed. So you think a judge could take action before Wednesday to at least put a temporary break on this? It's possible, but I'm less optimistic in the long run that if there was a full-out court challenge to it where it went to the Eighth Circuit or went to the Court of Appeals arguing that this violates a row and violates whole women's health with the current bench. I mean, they seem to be chipping away, and they're they're going to try and say, no, we don't see – in this particular case, we don't see it as an undue hardship. I think there's a good chance of that. Uh, we've talked about this before. I don't see the Supreme Court saying we're overruling Roe versus Wade, but I, I, I see them chipping away at it very slowly. Over Do you think that was years. maybe part of the intent of the Missouri legislature to say, yeah, let's see if we can be this yeah, case other, that, that and, chips away? And other states doing the same thing. Sure. If, if you read the law, I mean, they make they go to you know great uh, lengths to try to say, oh, look at all these things that have changed since Roe versus Wade. You know, viability. Right. You know what we know about when a fetal heart heartbeat is detectable. What we know about when pain uh, is detectable uh, by by a fetus. Um, and so, you know, they try to fit it into some sort of uh, way in which the Supreme Court could say, well, you know. Things have changed, so Roe versus Wade's uh, not not in anymore. I mean, there's no way you can you can that a court can uphold this Missouri law or any other eight week law or heartbeat law without throwing out the core of of uh, of the Supreme Court's interpretation um, of the abortion right, which is that that basically there is a constitutional right to an abortion prior to viability. Uh, the, I mean, whether it's eight weeks or fourteen weeks or Eighteen weeks or twenty weeks, you know, which are all the fallbacks in the Missouri law, um, those are not constitutional unless the Supreme Court. They would have to take the step. They, they can't just like like uh, whittle away at Roe versus Wade. They would have to say this is wrong. You know, we're, we're, we are Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided, and this is the new law. I, I do think the U.S. Supreme Court will whittle away mm-hmm. at Roe versus Wade, but you can't. They can't. That can't get them to an eight week. Uh, Democratic presidential candidate Kristen Gillibrand was here over the weekend, and she said, as president, I would codify Roe versus Wade, and I'd make it federal law so that it is precedent. And under that federal law, it would preempt this horrible law in Missouri. Is she saying something a president could do here? Well, she's got to get Congress to go along with right. her. Yeah. yeah. So it, she can't do it by herself, yeah. and, and it's not precedent, but it would be a federal law that would probably preempt preempt state law. So if she could get Congress to act, that she's what she's that's saying big, would have a, a difference. Yeah, there's a lot of ifs in that right. statement. <laughs> and they'd have to make it clear they were trying to preempt state law. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. something that has to be in in the legislation itself. Okay. So I don't think that doesn't sound but, like something Missouri should hold out its hope that if only President Gillibrand gets in, <laughs> all our problems will be solved. But it's very fundamental that the US Constitution trumps state law and yeah. state constitutions. So this Missouri state law, if it's if it uh, disagrees with the U.S. Supreme Court's interpretation uh, of the Constitution, then it is null and void. 
Last week, the Public Defender's Office suggested that this new abortion law in Missouri could affect its budget. The law, quote, creates a new Class B felony for any person who knowingly induces the abortion of an unborn child, which arguably would include post-conception contraception, the office comptroller wrote in a memo. If so, this would result in the prosecution of an unknown but significant number of indigent women throughout the state, which would require representation by the state public defender system. Um, is this fear-mongering here, or is this something where we really could see these prosecutions um, when this law goes into effect? Well, uh, you know, the supporters of the law, including the governor who signed it, um, said that the wi- that women would not be prosecuted. Um, but yeah, I think what the public defender's office is suggesting is that uh, women who left the state of Missouri to get abortions – they might do it in uh, Illinois, for might example. Do it in Illinois, or they might be given a drug to bring back uh, to Missouri uh, to utilize, and that they could potentially then be prosecuted. So um, I think it's a possible interpretation of the law. Mark Smith, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a possible interpretation, um, but I, I doubt it would happen, but I don't know. Well, I mean, supporters of the the bill point to language in the statute that says a woman upon whom an abortion is performed or induced in violation of this subsection shall not be prosecuted for a conspiracy to violate the provisions of this subsection. And really where some of the dispute is, is supporters say, look, we've said we're not prosecuting women. Yeah. Um, other folks point out that it only says that a woman won't be prosecuted for a conspiracy to violate oh, the provisions. Mm-hmm. And so really the concern that opponents have is that in, in the case of a pill-induced abortion where arguably the woman herself is inducing the abortion, that this statute could be used to prosecute that woman. And, you know, whatever the supporters of the law say, they're not the ones who are ultimately going to decide whether a woman's going to be prosecuted under the statute. It's going to be you know, prosecuting attorneys in different right. counties all over Missouri and for them to claim they can guarantee that no prosecuting attorney is going to attempt to use the law that way. I mean, I, I simply don't think they can say that. Yeah, that's a very good point. You get some prosecutor and some who wants to make a name for him or herself and this will be their way. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill, you mentioned people who would go to another state, that they could end up getting swept up in a, a dragnet here, um, being charged with having an abortion. How would why, why would crossing a state line be something that could come into play here? Well, it, it's just that if 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 Missouri ends up not having uh, not having an abortion clinic, mm-hmm. uh, since there's only one left, Planned Parenthood, and it's having its own troubles keeping its license. Uh, and and since if the if the eight week ban went into effect, you would not be able to go to that abortion clinic to get an abortion after eight weeks. So then you would have to cross the state line to get an abortion or to get a, a, a pill that could induce an abortion. Okay. And then you'd come back across the state line. The pill might take effect there. So, th- so they couldn't probably get you. Could they get you for the if you did, if you had a medical procedure in another state? I mean, could Missouri prosecute that because it happened that the actus was in a different state? Yeah, I don't think but so. But if you took but the pill. The pill, right. That's interesting. I hadn't thought so about that So then the abortion would actually kick in maybe after you've crossed back across the state line. Or you actually take the pill. The act oh, okay. occurs in the state. Yeah. Oh, it's all very complicated here. Um, <laughs> we're talking with our legal roundtable. Uh, that was just Mark Smith, 
um, who's at Washington University. Uh, we're also talking to Bill Freivogel, who's a professor at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. And we're here with Lisa Hoppenjans, who's the director of WashU's new First Amendment Clinic. Let's talk about a case out of Kansas City. Last week, Ricky Kidd walked out of prison after doing 23 years for a murder that the judge says he did not commit. But he may not be home free yet. Bill, do you want to um, get us up to speed on this case? Yeah, well, uh, so Ricky Kidd is uh, one of actually uh, uh, two uh, Missouri men who have been in the news lately for uh, who have been were convicted of murders, uh, uh, both sort of based upon witness identifications. The other person we're talking about is the St. Louis and Lamar Johnson, and um, and these were murders that were committed in the mid '90s. Uh, convictions, sentenced uh, to to life in prison, and um, and and so it, the the uh, kid. Uh, I, is um, ha, was found to have the the um, the eyewitness recanted, and it was found that there was other evidence that hadn't been turned over by prosecutors, and so he was he has been released, uh, but the the Missouri Attorney General has not yet decided whether or not uh, to try to reprosecute him. Um, the uh, in 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 the in the Missouri in the St. Louis case. Um, this is the case of Lamar Johnson. Lamar Johnson. Uh, in the Lamar Johnson case, you know, again, this is a case where uh, a, a man was shot, I think, in 1994 on his front porch. Uh, there was a witness identification that was recanted, prosecutorial uh, information was withheld. This is the, the very interesting case where Kim Gardner uh, went said that her unit that looks for uh, uh, unjust convictions found this case as being one of the, uh, the the unjust convictions, and she has gone to court to ask for a new trial. Uh, the attorney gen- uh, attorney general uh, Eric Schmidt says that's not her; she doesn't have the power to do that, uh, and that Johnson has to re- uh, remain in remain in prison. The, um, as a matter of fact, he makes the argument not only does she not have the legal power. But also, it's not ethical for a prosecutor to seek a new trial for a person she's prosecuting. Uh, when I guess I'd like to ask him, is it ethical for a Missouri attorney general to keep an innocent man in prison? Yeah, I mean, I saw a quote in one of his legal filings where he was saying, Missouri rules have no provision for the granting of a new trial based on newly discovered evidence once certain time limits have expired. Um, Lisa, do you do you feel comfortable talking about this? This just to me seems as a layman, this seems crazy. Like, how many times have we seen Law and Order where they come up with a new piece of evidence <laughs> that should get the man out of prison? Right. Right. Well, I have not had a chance to read the attorney general's uh, submission in this case. I mean, I can say generally, folks who are convicted of offenses have two ways of bringing up challenges. They can bring up challenges during their direct appeals process, and then they can bring challenges uh, through a writ of habeas corpus. And as you're seeing a, a rise in sort of these actual innocence cases because of advances in technology, where people are now, years after the fact, often able to bring you know to light new evidence that wasn't available at the time and that they're using uh, to support their innocence, I mean, Missouri isn't the only place that's struggled for the correct way to handle these actual innocence claims. 
Um, courts have addressed whether you can bring those up on federal habeas or state habeas. So, I mean, I, I would say, Lisa, sorry, what is a writ of habeas corpus? So, I mean, it's a, it's an opportunity for a inmate to raise a collateral attack on their conviction. So, outside of the direct pe- appeals process, and sort of a side route to get in front exactly. Of the so they can bring okay. up different constitutional violations and, and things like that. So, a, a different way. Once you've exhausted all your direct appeals there's still an opportunity to bring up certain types of challenges to your conviction. And why, I, kn- I know you said that in this one you're not so familiar with the details, but if Eric Schmidt is saying, oh, we can't do this, time's out, it's too late, why not just go the habeas route? Yeah, I, I don't know about that, but but here's what I wanted to say. I thought, I read um, Schmidt's uh, brief, and it I thought he was saying that she had an affirmative, that she had an ethical duty to present new evidence, but he just said, but she doesn't have any legal route to to remedy it, you know, which um, and there is this tension on these kind of on the one hand, you don't want people who are falsely imprisoned to stay in jail. We don't want that. That's not right. But on the other hand, you don't want just people repeating and repeating, you know, the same arguments. And so he's trying to make it sound like, well, we've already been through all this stuff. And I don't know enough about the previous history. But I mean, but it seems like you don't get circuit attorneys coming in saying, this was a mistake. You get prisoners all the time. I mean, when you're in prison, that's all you do is you write habeas petitions because it's something to do, and and you hope you get lucky. But circuit attorneys don't do this. I mean, and the fact, and also, the attorney general stayed out of it until the very last minute when it looked like something might happen, and then they they came in. I, I thought that was a little strange too. So we'll so, see what happens with it. Of course, you know, Kim Gardner, of course, is one of these. Uh, you know, more defense-friendly circuit attorneys elected in the in the wake of Ferguson, uh, and um, but e- even before before uh, she was in office, Jennifer Joyce had a unit that was right. looking for uh, unjust convictions in in uh, capital cases and other cases. So uh, it's not something that just she has pushed. I mean, and, and there's the amicus brief from the other prosecuting attorneys who've all signed saying we agree with her. So it's not just her, but, and I think Wellesley, Wesley Bell is one of right. the people. I mean, one thing that, that Schmidt, the attorney general, is is relying on a lot is that, uh, okay, you know, there, there are these ways to go to court and challenge this, and 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 uh, he, has, he has done that over and over again and been rejected in court. Well, what, what that's not paying attention to is that the courts have set the bar for actual innocence so high that it's almost impossible mm-hmm. to meet. You know, set all sorts of deadlines. You can't make this claim. Uh, you know, for uh, if you don't, you know, make it within a certain amount of time after the original conviction. So it's almost impossible for a person to to make a claim of actual innocence in court and get it accepted. It's very hard. That is a really depressing thought. Um, one other case that's also dealing with prisons. Last week, the class action lawsuit against Missouri prisons for their handling of inmates with hepatitis C got its day in court. The suit alleges that 4,590 Missouri prison inmates have chronic hepatitis C, and only about 3% are getting treatment. Uh, the MacArthur Justice Center last week it was asking a federal judge to expedite this case. What kind of duty does the state owe to prisoners? If it's a condition that you might not die of, but you're really going to suffer, is the state legally obligated to make sure you don't suffer? 
Well, the, the duty that they uh, – there is a constitutional duty, uh, and that is cruel and unusual punishment right. is barred by the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution. And you think that could apply to oh, sure. letting yes. Hep C yeah. go? Yeah, it, it, it could apply. And, you know, there have been, there have been suits all over the country on, uh, you know, on uh, prison conditions that amount to cruel and unusual punishment. I, I thought this – when I read about this, uh, this suit, it, it's just shocking that all of these, these five – Potentially five thousand people, or you know, I think, but possibly with chronic hepatitis, two thousand people could, uh, aren't only a very small fragment is, is being treated, and these things this can uh, lead to death, and uh, it's 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 really shocking. So the the win was to certify it as a class, which means they can all come together, and and the state was arguing, well, they all are at different points in their. And their illness, and so they should. There, there's too much difference, and the court said, "Yeah, no, we're not, we'll let them come together." <laughs> if you've got so, hepatitis C, yeah, you're you covered got, by yeah, this. Exactly. Yeah. So it doesn't matter how bad it is. Now there could be a real cost to this lawsuit. Yeah. It turns out, even with generic drugs, it's about twenty thousand dollars for eight weeks of treatment. We're talking about five thousand inmates, yeah. um, and, and the state is rationing it and just giving it to the most uh, sick, and and then letting everyone else eventually get sick. And so, yeah, there's going to be a huge huge cost. But like Bill said, this is a constitutional right right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment. So it sounds like you guys are thinking that um, this could end up costing Missouri a lot of money and there's going to be nothing Missouri can do about it? Well, it looks like a strong case to me. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> okay. Well, we've been talking today with uh, Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. We're also here with Mark Smith, Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University. And today was also the first day that we were joined on our legal roundtable by Lisa Hoppenjans, the director of WashU's new First Amendment Clinic. Thank you to all three for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank Thanks. you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.